Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora. I'm Jayon Marku, and as always, I'm joined by Nigam Aurora. How's it going, everybody? We are joined this week with our wonderful colleagues, David Valancourt from the GMP Collective, as well as Dr. Sarah Jane Ward from Temple University. David, Sarah, how are you doing today? Hey there, Jayhan and Nigam. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Doing great. Hey, guys. So happy to be here again. Thanks for including me. So wonderful to see you all in the virtual studio. Um, so today we're going to talk about some really fun news and hopefully help our listeners understand some of the interesting things that have been going on. So we're going to talk about some recalls of DEA costing American jobs, um, some psychedelic healing ceremonies, as well as uh, what's going on with STEM, uh, state hemp programs. Are they on the fritz? Uh, what is going on in some states with their hemp programs? And then we'll dive into two uh, research studies, one on CBD and withdrawal, which is a very fascinating thing. Does CBD cause withdrawal? Can you actually detect it? And one on what is the current status of universal labeling for products that contain cannabis and THC. So first off with our news headline, who pre-licked my pre-roll? A cautionary tale. Leafly is reporting that in Michigan, a pre-roll facility thought it was a good idea to lick at least one joint um, or perhaps several before it was shut down. State regulators have shut down the entire factory, recalled of about 3,000 pre-rolled cannabis cigarettes or joints, I guess as they're referred to in regulatory speak. Um, but this, um, you know, typically uh, cannabis products that are inhaled are pre-rolls and the such are not licked. They're, they're usually filled, um, you know, if you're getting you know, cigarettes from a tobacco company, they don't lick those for you. Um, there are machines to do this and things like that. So while we might think this is disgusting, perhaps a, a rookie mistake, you know, David, you work a lot with supply chain. Um, what do you make of this? Is this just another uh, example of a recall in the cannabis industry? Um, or is this a sign of a much larger issue? What are your thoughts on pre-licked pre-rolls? Oh, I, I don't even know where to begin. It's it's both, um, I would say. And, you know, yes, the industry is new. Um, the folks that are in the industry are not familiar with, you know, food manufacturing best practices, um, proper health and hygiene plans. They're not provided appropriate training. And, you know, the regulators, um, to no fault of their own as well, are, are new to this space, right? They, they may be versed in restaurants and, you know, small food facilities, um, but typically, you know, this is the Department of Revenue uh, that these kinds of, you know, regulatory inspections come down through. So regulators, former law enforcement officers, they're not thinking either about these implications for HACCP and preventative control plans. And um, while I say that, at the same time, that's not an excuse. Um, the industry, th this is just another bad mark for the industry that's already scrutinized and has a stigma that we're working on. So uh, this is just... Uh, folks should know better you're, um, you're right you know there are best practices sterilized gloves sterilized tools there's protocols to follow you know basic ppe yeah exactly basic, you know i know that dr ward when she's doing research you wear that ppe when you're working with you know animals when you're administering cannabinoids to sensitive cells is there ever an instance where you would have been like spit on the syringe and then like put it in the animal <laughs> i mean does does i mean can you give us your thoughts on this as a researcher? I mean, 
you would, I guess you would hope to gosh, if you were doing a clinical study or something involving pre-rolled cannabis cigarettes that people wouldn't lick them or contaminate them in some way. Um, but as a researcher, and you're thinking about working with companies, what questions come to mind about this um, to you? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I, th I think David touched on part of it. It's, I think part of it is it's a shame that it's a story that comes out of the cannabis industry because, you know, maybe people already have negative views of these things, you know, not being legitimate and underground. You know, it's, it's like we expect a certain level of sanitation for everything that we do. And especially now, we have such heightened awareness of that. But, you know, you go into McDonald's or, you know, you hear stories about people talking about, oh, be nice to your waiter or else they might, you know, spit in your cheeseburger. <laughs> so I think that this is, I think this is really a, you know, an employee issue. So in my laboratory, everyone gets trained on you know best sterile practices and how do you properly take your gloves on and off and how do you properly use your mask and everything and you know i think the unfortunate thing is that for some people they'll be listening for anything negative coming out of the cannabis industry when i doubt that this has anything to do really with the cannabis industry and everything to do with every once in a while there's a bad apple who does something really stupid and we all just need to, you know, and we are at the end of the day responsible for what goes on in our facilities, whether they be a laboratory or a restaurant or, um, you know, a manufacturing facility. And, you know, that's a really good point. You know, I'm sure plenty of people have spit on burritos and then use that to like seal them up as they're rolling it. Like it's gotta have happened in other industries. Um, but I think you also bring up a good point is that here's an example of a company taking responsibility. They're engaging with the recall. I mean, if this was an illicit market or a gray market company, there would be no recall. We would never hear about this. So on one hand, it's a cautionary tale and it's really stupid. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like, hey, the system works. Like things are getting recalled and, and changes can be made. So, um, thank you. So Negan, before we move on to the next story, I want to get, you know, you have a lot of experience with boots on the ground in actual operations in California. You've visited them while they're being built, while people are working at them. In your experience, is this commonplace to see kind of uh, ridiculous things happening like this? Or are you saying this is kind of in the minority? Here? So, uh, so uh, th thanks for asking, Jehan. So, and, and as we're discussing this, I, I really appreciate uh, Sarah's perspective but there is a the, there's a reality that that comes with the cannabis industry which is that people are touching these products so in some facilities they have machines that pack the pre-rolls now what happens though is that sometimes those machines pack them too tight the customers don't like them in this issue so actually some people do prefer to have humans pack the pre-rolls now i've been in facilities where the folks packing pre-rolls wear a lab coat and they wear a hairnet and they wear a beard net but they're not wearing a mask um now maybe that's different in covid but and then i've been in facilities where they're just that's not the case at all they're just people with a you know essentially sticking a pre-roll and, and just packing it up so i i guess like this this story 
is concerning. Obviously, nobody wants to be consuming a pre-roll that other people are looking. But the point that I'm making is that it, kind of a counterpoint to Sarah's is that the reality in the industry in a lot of places is that people are touching these products. And so in, in um, that's maybe something we're learning with COVID too, is that before these folks weren't wearing masks. Now everyone who works in facilities is wearing masks and maybe that that was warranted the whole time for keeping a product like cannabis clean and safe for the consumer. Yeah, uh, the human element of human resources is probably their biggest vulnerability. <laughs> but no, I agree with you. We, we live in a reality where humans touch things that we eat. Um, you know, I've often wondered, do I want a sandwich that plastic has touched or that human hands have touched? In my opinion, it just depends on which one is clean. Uh, you know, you can wear PPE and you can still contaminate it and still contaminate things. But again, this is, I think this is just part of a growing pains of, of an industry. If we didn't see recall plans and everything was hunky-dory, that would be way too good to believe. Um, and, you know, the marijuana industry employs a lot of jobs. And we can all speculate about how that would be different if there were more official sources of cannabis from the federal government. And to transition, you know, the marijuana moment has published an article entitled DEA's marijuana delays are costing Americans jobs, bipartisan lawmakers say. And just to want to read you this quote um, regarding the DEA um, that lawmakers said, quote, delays in approving grower applications for the manufacturing of research grade marijuana have had potentially detrimental effects on Americans health as untested products are being widely used for numerous medical conditions without safety or efficacy data to support their uses. It also has cost American jobs as other countries around the world, such as Israel, the UK, Canada, have taken the lead in cannabis research, reaping the benefits of patents and products derived from this research. Meanwhile, American researchers have resorted to importing cannabis from overseas. With the upcoming selection um, in this country, um, is, uh, you know, and, and Israel and the UK and Canada, they took our cannabis jobs you know, how much of a real impact is this? I mean, um, Sarah, uh, if, um, if there, you know, and just in the research world, do you think that the DEA's delay has affected your ability to, to work? Do you think you'd be able to get more grants or hire more people if there were more sources and more people out there providing research grade cannabis products? Is this somehow, was there a benefit? I mean, have you, do you have a feeling one way or the other how, this plays out. I know that David and Nigam, who work much more closely with the industry, probably have a different view, but I just want to get your perspective on what lawmakers are saying here. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think this would make one of the biggest, most impactful changes for research. Um, so, you know, there are several things that come to mind with this. I've actually been involved with companies who have applied uh, to the government to have grow facilities to provide um, cannabis for research. It is so needed. Again, not for me as a, uh, you know, rat lab researcher, um, but for all of my colleagues who want to do cannabis research. It is just a massive hindrance to not have more products available just because of the uh, immense strain that it puts on the University of Mississippi facility. Uh, you know, this is just one person trying to run that whole operation. But as the article pointed out, the 
the strain or the cultivar, I'm sorry, I'm going to use the wrong words and make people wince, but, you know, the, the cannabis that's produced at that one site is one particular time with one particular composition, and it's not relevant to the majority of the kinds of clinical research that people want to engage in. The other thing that was so important in that article was pointing out that we aren't able to use the medical cannabis that our dispensaries within our state sell. That is so extremely frustrating. So in the state of Pennsylvania, we have a wonderful medical cannabis program, and all of the major universities want to do research with these medical cannabis growers and dispensaries, but the universities feel very strongly that that is federally illegal. It's going to impact their federal funding. So there is a wall put up between the medical cannabis program in the state and our capacity to do that research. And I do think, you you know, you pointed out um, the political ramifications. It reminds me of the fact that the Hemp Act was really pushed forward by Mitch McConnell. You know, if you can talk about jobs and the economy and get bipartisan support for things, that is important, and it, and it's true. Go figure. You know, it has political implications, and it's really fact-based. This would provide lots of jobs, and it would move the science forward. You know, one of the authors of that letter is Matt Getz from Florida, who I can't think of any one other positive thing to say about the man, but he supports medical cannabis. I mean, who would have thought that this guy would have done something that I would cheer on. But yeah, I, th I think the, the politics of this right now are, are critical and hopefully will work in its favor. Sorry, I talked so much. No, no, that was absolutely perfect, Sarah. If you've got a couple more minutes, we're eager to listen to more. But, um, I, you know, the thing that brings up to me is scalability of research. You know, Mahmoud El-Soli, you know, he's a friend of ours. He's a sweetheart. And, you know, it's funny, it's like if outside of the cannabis world, not a lot of people know that he does what he does because he works on so many other plants. And I just, I can just see him in his office being like, I'd give anything to study avocados. Like, <laughs> but he's the only reason this material is around because he fills out the paperwork and he does it. And, you know, so I think he really would love some people to carry on the torch and continue to develop this, you know, IND program. Um, mm -hmm. You know, David, I want to ask you a question about scalability here, because when we talk about clinical studies, you need supply chains and you need, then phase two, you need even more of the product. Could you, you know, from your GMP perspective, could you, could you address scalability and standardization of processes with the situation and, and what we hope for? Yeah, I mean, you know, we can kind of go back to the obvious of which they mentioned there and we've all talked about before where you know, there is only the University of Mississippi right currently still um, and that you know to Sarah's point there's great programs within the state of Pennsylvania um, in Colorado I know that there's some research going on with UC Health and uh, the university the medical school there where they're having to get creative and use <clears throat> products from dispensaries have folks take it off site and then they come into their mobile testing lab and do the you know analytical and the you know human performance 
procedures there so they can get the diversity right and uh making sure that which i know is in an article we'll talk about later you know having thinking about it like grapes right so you grow it in one environment you grow pinot noir in you know western western part of france you get a certain you know flavor and certain profile you take that to the north slope of california you take it to you know arizona where there's some grapes in the verde valley the soil the environmental conditions are going to result in different products and different you know um, different chemical profiles right chemotypes so um that's important to look at with doing research um and having that diversity as well great point great point um you know Negam, unless you have a comment on this article i'd like to transition to something um, very interesting that's happening in Oakland. But did you have any comments on the DEA article for the moment? No, I, I think um, I think it was well covered, but I'm interested to talk about this Oakland topic as well. So uh, another article published by our friends at Marijuana Moment uh, is entitled Advocates Unveil Guide for Psychedelic Healing Ceremonies They Hope to Legalize in Oakland. Um, basically, Oakland is trying to set up this program first in the nation, first city in the nation to decriminalize a wide range of psychedelics. Honestly, I'm not that surprised. There was a time in my life where Oakland was called Oaksterdam. It's where some of the first, um, you know, Prop 215 operations were. It was, you know, a street where you was compliant to have these operations. There weren't a lot of places where you could operate. Now, um, things like psilocybin and ayahuasca are being decriminalized. But advocates have made it clear they want to expand these programs to allow people to consume the plants and fungi uh, in control settings. Now, what questions do Nigam, David, sir, do you have about this process? I mean, it's one thing to have a safe place to use a substance. It's another thing to have a control setting with a goal or outcome that's therapeutic based. Um, I can't think of any places where you can go and use cannabis as part of a physical therapy treatment or, you know, use it while you're in session with a psychiatrist. <laughs> I've never heard of these things in the States with cannabis, at least not officially. What are your initial thoughts? You know, your boots on the ground in California. Um, you know, you're just across the bridge is Oakland. I'm sure you can see the psychedelic lights emanating from people using those substances from your house. What's your opinion of this? So, yeah, um, I, I just had like two thoughts I wanted to share that plugged in with what you were just saying. The first one is you made a good point about the uh, the setting. So it's interesting to see this happening um, from decriminalized nature, but then you see in parallel through like FDA and like regulated healthcare systems people doing like ketamine therapy psilocybin therapy uh, mdma coming up so i i appreciate what they're doing and on a a people level on a core level i agree with it but i just wonder how it plays out with something like that outside of the the kind of standard healthcare system happening when there's a similar di different but similar thing happening inside that regulated healthcare system the other thing that I just wanted to touch on that I would even put as, as a higher importance here, and this is the first thing I thought when Oakland uh, decriminalized psilocybin last year, is that decrim is great. It's a great first step, but it needs to come with home grow and gifting laws because, okay, you can have it, 
but don't grow it. Don't give it to your community to help them medically or otherwise. So um, that that's just one thing. And, and I read through the, the article and, and the letter as well, and it, it doesn't address that. So that's something that's really important to take this to the next level, even on a, a community basis, so people can feel comfortable in their environment with kind of trialing the, these medicines. Absolutely. You know, while I think this is a really interesting idea, having lived in the Bay Area for a large part of my life, um, I don't think I ever had an appointment, whether medical or administrative, where I didn't have to run out in the middle of it to feed a parking meter. Um, I would have to say if I was partway through a psychedelic healing ceremony, that would not be good. So I have a lot of questions about how does this work, you know, in practicality. Um, you know, Sarah, what questions do you think people should ask before they were to do something like this? Um, you know, with that kind of researcher's hat on, what would you want to know before you did one of these ceremonies or one of these healing mm -hmm. ceremonies? What, what would be some like a fundamental question you would want to ask. Yeah, I mean, so this is really fascinating for me because it really almost tracks my evolution of understanding and acceptance and attitudes on different illicit substances. You know, I was known in my circle of friends as the one who never smoked pot. And now with my career and doing this research, everyone is shocked and, you know, gets a huge kick out of it. So my attitudes, if you had asked me a question 20 years ago about, you know, legalizing cannabis and using it therapeutically, I would have said very different things than now. I have very little expertise in the psychedelic field, except that I am fascinated by the ketamine and psilocybin research, the work out of Hopkins, uh, you know, I'm, and as a substance abuse researcher and hearing about the results for substance use patients, it's really thrilling. Uh, so I guess I really am uh, in very strong agreement with Nigam that, you know, on the one side, you have this increase in solid research that's very promising. And I get worried from the other end if something moves too quickly that we're unsure of other people's attitudes are going to be like, Oh, these people are doing what? Um, and you know, how do those two spaces come together? So, you know, my question would be, you know, what are the sources? What is, what is the training? Um, you know, and to, and to sort of, you know, put on my more, snobby scientific hat like what are your credentials how do you guys know what Perfectly you're doing valid. Yeah. um you Absolutely. know and it, it does just real quickly it also reminds me of the cbd story where you know there are clinical trials going on to study the effects of cbd and then hemp comes along and people walk into the gas station and buy products to treat every ailment under the sun and and that worries me with that too you don't want to delegitimize something inadvertently that has promise because you might be going at it in not the optimum way. You know, that is a, I think those are perfectly valid points. Um, who do you think you are <laughs> and what gives <laughs> you the right? Those are great questions to either ask before or during a psychedelic healing ceremony. <laughs> but I think those are basic, like really, when it comes down to it, what training does not only the primary person you're seeing there, but the staff around there have. 
And you brought up a really good point about substance use. People, even if it's an illegal substance like caffeine or another medication, you know, I might be concerned if someone is looking for this help and accidentally has some sort of weird reaction with another medication they're taking that also alters mood or cognition. Um, not that that's super scary. I just would hope that there would be professionals able to handle um, people who are visibly having a, 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 either a minor or a serious adverse event. I think that that's a really good point. And then, you know, you know, staying somewhere for hours, um, you know, pre this environment, um, pre COVID, I couldn't imagine staying anywhere for more than six hours. <laughs> like who has the time? Um, you know, David, I just want to ask you a quick question here. You know, you specialize in operations excellence. Um, I have a lot of questions about the supply chain. Like how, you know, if you're going to go and do this, are there questions you might want to ask about the supply? Um, you know, is, you know, maybe you're fine with it coming from some guy at the farmer's market, but maybe you might want it produced under different conditions. I mean, from an operations That's, perspective, what, what should consumers maybe be asking of the supply chain? I mean, and that's, you know, that speaks so well to, to Nigam's point there earlier where, hey, so you can, you can have it, but how do you get it? <laughs> There's no legal framework for that. How do you, you know, cultivate it? How do you process it? Um, that's, that's essentially back to the supply chain, right? So we're still in the same situation and with increased demand and in increased availability, you're going to have more entrance to the market, you know producing this product, which again, what kind of integrity, what kind of credentials do they have? Um, you know, asking those basic questions. And that's, you know, that's the same issue in a lot of, you know, how the cannabis market has started out too, right? And yeah. uh, there's a lot of parallels there. And, um, you know, I want to just switch for a second. Uh, hopefully I kind of address that, that question there. I think there's, I, I struggle to find a couple of basic questions to ask uh, that really paint the picture. It's it's really such a complicated topic that there really needs to be you know oversight with again credentialed people managing the supply chain. And you know to like Sarah's point there, you know thinking about the harm reduction um, and the catch twenty two of like training of of professionals with the credentials and you know what happens again back to cannabis the bud tenders are the ones providing you know medical patients um, nothing against those folks but what happens if you know if somebody's on seven different indicate uh, uh, you know uh, drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, and there's a contraindication or an adverse event? Who's qualified to actually be able to look at that and say this is going to help you, this is going to hurt you? And um, also, you know, it's great that they provide a venue. I love it um, in concept, but again, there's the catch twenty two of well, now if that person's not trained well or you know it's an experience that somebody takes. The, 25 people under leadership for and all 25 people have a bad experience and a bad trip now all of a sudden you've taken it's one thing when you cook something at home raw meat and you give yourself you know kind of some food poisoning it's another one 25 people get that so uh, we just have to think about those things what's um i wonder what the insurance policy is like for this place <laughs> yeah. well it's it's, yeah. it's got to be questionable because you know right now what i'm hearing is we don't know what's safer to have a commercially produced or just have someone produce it themselves for <laughs> these types of treatments and that's a oof, what a, you know what we did what's clear is we need more education now i have certainly read some stuff about this you know breaking open the mind was a good book it's a little dated even more dated is Marriage of the Sun and the Moon by Andrew Weil, the vitamin guy. This book is amazing. He just basically went around the world or North and South America trying different psychoactive plants and, and mushrooms. It was really fascinating. 
I, you know, I just got a copy for my wife for Christmas of the you know, psilocybin mushroom Bible. But, you know, Sarah, you're an academic. You're fascinated by this. Is there, is there a nice reference you'd say for people to go for more information or is there a particular publication that you're interested in? Yeah, so, th so what really piqued my interest in the area other than having some friends and colleagues in the space uh, was the recent book, recent 2018 by Michael Pollan, uh, How to Change Your Mind. And it's again, it's a similar type of experiential book to what you were saying where he's like, I want to find out more about this. What's the best way to do that? Try it, right? Now I sound like Trump. Take it. What do you have to lose? Uh, but, you know, it, 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 and he, talk, he talks a lot about the, the people who run these therapy sessions and that it's underground and you have to know someone who knows someone who is an expert in this. But I, the, the book is fascinating. It's an awesome read. So if anybody wants to know a little bit more about the topic, I highly recommend it. Yes, and, and I, I've heard some of his interviews about the book. Um, well, I think my favorite one is is someone was asking him about if psychedelics are good to get rid of, you know, the ego, and he was like, "Hold on, the ego's good. The ego wrote the book." <laughs> so, um, so I think some of our even our fundamental basic understandings of what psychedelics do to our consciousness and our perceptions. Um, I think the more you can read from these people who've tried to do it in controlled settings and you know create a rubric and track how these things are affecting them. I think those are important resources. Those are the, you know, these are the case reports. These are the pioneers going out there. Um, and yeah, I think the more modern you read it, the better, because you're going to read about people consuming products made from modern techniques and modern cultivation and modern stuff like that versus like not everyone can drive to the Amazon and find a shaman and, you know, build a hut. That, that's not a realistic thing for a lot of people, but um, so, you know, we've seen this program emerge, but while this new, very fascinating and potentially like, I think could be very good for public health if handled in a mature and adult way, <laughs> this, this, this opportunity for people to, I think for the substance abuse realm is great, but the same hand, you know, CBD and hemp, we see similar claims. We hear about psychedelics. Um, and so just real quickly, before we go into the articles, um, I just want to touch upon state hemp programs appear to be taking step backwards. If this had happened in medical cannabis, I think people would be losing their minds. But basically, um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture sent Colorado officials um, back to the drawing board to revise the state's proposed hemp farming laws. Um, and this has happened to five other states, California, Illinois, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Utah. David, I want to go to you because, you know, you see uh, operations who are trying to follow operational excellence. We're trying to do best practices. Um, what would something like this do to a GMP operator with hemp? Um, would you think they would just stick to their guns? Would you advise, hey, stick to your guns, keep doing the paperwork, even though the laws are, are kind of ephemeral? What would you tell a client about this announcement? I mean, it's kind of crazy, yes. right? Yeah, you, you ask really good, tough questions, Jayon. And obviously, you know, the industry's asking those too, right? I mean, that's that's a real question. What the heck do I do? And, you know, to try to give a simple answer, I mean, you know, I say go back to the best practices of, you know, good agricultural practices. Um, if you're going to, you know, stick with it, uh, you know, that, there is a framework there. And to the extent it's going to, you know, the paperwork's going to be different, certainly, 
right? Um, you're going to have to look at that. And, you know, I feel for the states too, because <clears throat> resources are limited in our, you know, current state of affairs, uh, especially so. And for states to go back and have to reinvent the wheel and rewrite <clears throat> based on, you know, these revisions, um, you know, it, it's basically playing this this game of a uh, you know, never ending circle. And how can you get ahead a and innovate when you're just trying to meet the most basic needs that are, you know, it's a moving target. So it's mm. challenging, but there, again, it, there's still the fundamental best practices when agricultural comes into so to adhere to. I really like it. Just because it doesn't have the word cannabis or hemp on it doesn't mean that it's, it's not an applicable standard. And, you know, from what I'm hearing, you're saying, yes, it sucks that we're losing this guidance and losing, losing these, these guidelines as they're just kind of, for whatever reason, not good enough. And I can think of a million people I want to blame for that. I am talking about you, you CBD company. No, just kidding. But, you know, <laughs> I kind of want to blame the industry here, you know, because where do standards come from? And what are, you know, politicians don't just like, uh, here's a hemp plan. They're talking to somebody. They're pulling the information from somewhere. They're, they're incredibly lazy. They plagiarize stuff all the time from white papers and documents. Um, you know, and before we move into the, the, the research, I guess, um, you know, Nigam, Again, boots on the ground type stuff. You have chemistry background. You know, you do formulation and product development. Is this good news? Is this bad news? I mean, do you think this is a chance for the industry to really get involved with the next set of regulations? What's your hope here as someone who, again, works in, with formulists and product development? What's your hope for this next round of hemp regulations? Yeah. Um... I, first thing, Jayhan, is to just echo what you said in the beginning. If this was happening with regulated THC markets, people would be losing their minds, their shirts, their livelihoods. <laughs> like every like, it, it's just insane. So, anyways, um, wow, what is my hope? Um, can I say can I say my fear instead of my hope? Is that is that acceptable? That is. You don't always have to answer my questions. You can uh, paraphrase, Here's, you know. I'll, you can I'll, answer in the form of a question, too, if you I'll, want. Okay, I'm going to say two things. One <laughs> thing is, this is part of the reason I reside in California, and this is part of the reason I work in the regulated industry. And here's the thing. This whole thing with hemp, it just, like, really concerns me for what the Fed does later for uh marijuana as we're termed to call things that have thc in them right you know we already have so many segmented regulations that it, it shocked me as well jayhan and it makes me fearful for the future uh you know it, it is a little unsettling you know i was talking to cornell university and they were looking at one of these licensed hemp facilities and that was like looking like a really cool industry academia team up and just being able to be a fly on the wall in the room and hear about these cool things. And then like a week later, it's like, we have no idea what's happening. Um, so I imagine for universities working with industry, this has got to be unsettling. You know, luckily, Sarah, I don't know if you have a, you know, you want to chime in with your two cents here, but you know, you're lucky enough to work in a state that hasn't ditched its hemp program. And I know you do like CBD research and like you said, been consulting with groups or advising groups, providing guidance various aspects um you know what's your hope or your fear with these um you know <laughs> you're probably very familiar mm -hmm. with the idea of having to rework something and resubmit it being in academia what are, what's a hope or a fear you have um with this landscape 
Yeah, so I'm going to say something that may be unpopular, and you know, I, I have so many mixed feelings about hemp um, because I of can't my wait. strong feelings about CBD. <laughs> um, I hope I hope that the most positive thing that could come out of it is that there are fewer hemp companies. Is that a terrible thing to say? It, it <laughs> is know, not. Was, it is not. I feel like. I feel like this is one of those things that, again, everybody and their cousin jumped into. And as you mentioned, you know, I get emails and phone calls all the time. People are starting up a hemp CBD company and, you know, can I be a consultant? And, um, you know, one positive about toughening up the regulations is that only maybe only really serious people or maybe more focused people. And I don't know to make this sort of sound like a survival of the fittest kind of thing that maybe it will improve who stays in the industry. Um, and I do know, you know, one of the challenges that I hear from hemp companies trying to make hemp derived CBD products is the immense difficulties in keeping the actual levels of THC below 0.3%. And you know that's not my area. That's more what you all know more about. Um, but if if that is the case, you know something needs to be sorted out. Is that number unrealistic, or do the companies need to improve upon some kind of methodology of their products? You know, I know people who have used these products and then tested positive for THC, and we all know that there are several reasons why that may happen several I, reasons but one yeah. could be that the product has more thc than you think was upward of 70 percent of all products tested in recent studies have been mislabeled <laughs> and had more or less cbd or more or less thc um so yeah my hope is that some positive outcome would be a strengthening um and perhaps more focus in the hemp derived cbd industry you know, absolutely. And, and I'll, I, I agree with your comments. Um, much like I feel like there's too many cannabis conferences and virtual events that it's not supportive. I feel similar to some of these events or some of these companies coming out. And there's a lot of companies doing it right. And I think they would like nothing more than to get credit for doing things right. I think we're going to see um, lawsuits, um, complaints filed against the use of organic labeling. We're going to see all sorts of things, you know, um, I've, I'm dealing with a heartbreaking case right now as an expert witness with a, a, a single mom who's losing her children because she tested positive for THC. And it turns out that 0.3% THC is legal until you consume it and have to take a drug test. So they're legal cannabinoids until there's a legal issue that comes up. <laughs> and it's a really mm -hmm. sucky place to be. And, and I really hope um, that we do see that. We see a brighter future um, and hopefully it doesn't get worse before it gets better, but this is a sign of everyone to, again, maybe line up at a starting line before taking off again. Well, we're, we're, we've really spent a good amount of time talking about this new stuff. I didn't expect us to go so deep into these articles, um, but they seem to be, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of mind munchies there, food for thought for people. But I want to go into two recent articles uh, while we run out the clock. Um, but this one's called Mitigating Potential Public Health Problems Associated with Edible Cannabis Products Through Adequate Regulation, a Landscape Analysis. What really caught my eye about this 
is that active members of the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission, active members of the Department of Public Health wrote this article. Um, and probably, I, I feel, you know, David probably has the most experience looking at labels, uh, you know, GMP, a big part of that is how you label and package the product. What's your initial takeaway from this article? Is it bad news? Is it good news? Should people read it? What are your initial thoughts on it? I mean, it's a solid synthesis of, you know, even what Sarah just mentioned uh, and you acknowledged a, a minute ago about, you know, 70% of packaged products in recent studies being mislabeled. And, you know, what is the labeled standard? Is there one? It really just, I like to see this in peer-reviewed literature though, right? It really just highlights the prominence of it. And, you know, the idea of a universal symbol to me is kind of ironic and, and painting and frustrating because uh, a universal symbol, like, large reach than just a, a single state jurisdictional boundary, but as they shout out, there's, you know, uh, almost every uh, unique symbol that looks nothing like the other for every state that there is a market for. So I'll start there. And there was a previous study um, in this field, um, I think the last, the name is COSAS, and they looked at um, consumers and how they perceive these labels and if they knew what they meant. And they looked at chronic cannabis users and a significant, statistically significant portion of them didn't know what the symbol meant. And later they realized that when labels have too much information on them, people don't read them. And sometimes there's so much regulatory language needed, like you have to put the whole law on the package that it obscures the universal symbol sometimes. Um, you know, and what's really cool about this article is they pulled um, symbols across different jurisdictions. And most of them are either a triangle or a square um, with a marijuana leaf and an exclamation point. Personally, I like the ones with less words. Like I don't have to squint and read, um, you know, a phone number or some warning. Just, I think, uh, you know, for me, what's really striking is just a black and white and red symbol with an exclamation point and a cannabis leaf. Um, you know, you know, Nigam, do you have thoughts on this? You know, you've, again, you've worked with products, you've been to facilities, you work in publishing you know, stranger to the industry. What are your thoughts on this article? Is there, you know, is there, what are your thoughts on universal symbols? Is there one in particular you like? Or, <laughs> um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll defer the, the symbol question. I, I did give this article a thorough read and, and I had some other shot, thoughts that I wanted to share. So, um, couple things that I thought were interesting. One was that th these are direct quotes from the article. Only 70% of jurisdictions mandated label claims to be supported by lab testing. So that, that was an, an interesting one, uh, a little bit of a, just trying to digest it by, does that mean by a state licensed lab? Does that mean by an in-house lab? Does that mean by a lab at all? If there is, if it's not supported by lab testing, where are you getting these numbers? Um, so that was interesting. Another one says, no two jurisdictions use the same panel of microorganisms using the same pass-fail criteria. So I thought that was interesting too, that, you know, your um, medical patient in, let's say Arkansas, and then you're on vacation or visiting family in California and your card doesn't work and you, you go to direct dispensary. And now what did safety mean in Arkansas and what does safety mean here? So in th that those things both plug into an overarching takeaway that I got, 
you know, being in the industry for several years, having familiarity with these products and the labeling requirements and all this, that I, I was already familiar with the minutia, but seeing this high level, this percent of jurisdictions do this, this percent of jurisdictions don't do this was that was it was really um, interesting. The, the last couple things that I would say that I thought were good call outs in this article is that they were recommending um, concentrate identification. So for some people, they want to know, is this made with distillate? Is it made with isolate? Is it made with full spectrum? I, I think that's important, and it's not common. And the the last thing is it called out um, nutrition facts. A lot of this stuff, is, it's food. And it's food that sometimes doesn't have nutrition facts on it because it's not being sold in the traditionally regulated food space. So uh, apologies for, for being long-winded, but um, oh, those, are, those are some of the key points that stood out to me. An excellent synopsis, Nigam. You know, uh, you know, Sarah. You know, if I if I was you, I would love to go in front of a room full of graduate students or pharmacy students, and much like this paper say is, class, what's the difference between a lozenge and a hard candy? What's the difference between a chewable <laughs> tablet and a chewable candy? Um, you know, gosh, you know, there's so many questions I have on this. But Sarah, what's your impression of this study? Um, I think a lot of people should read this. I think is really fascinating but what, what are some of your takeaways yeah yeah so you know i used to teach in the pharmacy school at temple before i joined the medical school and really the one thing i learned about pharmacy school is don't call anything a pill <laughs> i know a lot of those words have very important meanings capsules tablets don't say pill um but I, you know other than that this is not you know my area um but yeah i mean I know, you know, touching upon one thing that Nigam said about food, I know there have been issues with some CBD products having, you know, containing sugar and how important that might be for people with diabetes. So when you're introducing food to a medication or, you know, a recreational substance, you know, it's like two worlds colliding that need, you need to make sure you're covering um, both aspects of it. Uh, again, just labeling in this area is one of those things that I think could be a potential downfall for the cannabis industry, for the hemp industry, for the CBD industry. Um, you know, we have to demand excellence in our labeling of products. Uh, on the flip side, I'll just mention one pet peeve um, that I have, which is sort of the opposite story and going back to hemp and hemp derived CBD hemp derived CBD is not approved to be in a food product so you are you can in Pennsylvania you can walk into your grocery store and buy hemp products that contain CBD but not food products and one thing that really irritates me is the labeling of foods as containing hemp and then people believing that they have CBD. And so this is more of like a buyer beware in the opposite. Like, and the reason why yeah. this comes up for me is I just, I see a lot of my friends on Facebook posting their hemp water and they think Ugh. they're being so progressive or trendy because they're drinking Ugh. CBD in their water. I know there are beers, Lagunitas makes a hemp beer. Um, you know, hemp's cool. It's all the rage. And it bothers me that that is, being taken advantage of, taking advantage of consumers that many 
assume are getting CBD or cannabinoids when they are not. I know that that's sort of wildly unrelated, but just something well, I wanted to mention on, this, no, it's, on that issue. It's We should label products that have CBD and maybe a universal symbol for contains over a certain mm-hmm. amount of CBD, you know, would be worthwhile. And then to your point about CBD water, uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite jokes. Um, you know, did you hear about the homeopathic doctor who drank a glass of water? He overdosed. No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, look up homeopathy if you don't get that joke. I don't want to explain it now. But, you know, speaking, <laughs> but I think it's a great transition to the next study, Sarah, um, which I would love to get I think is much more in your wheelhouse is CBD withdrawal. Now, at first I thought, why do we care about this? This is so stupid. Like, of course it doesn't have withdrawal. And then I just took a second to read marketing claims, chronic pain, mood alteration. I was like, and I just thought of the sword and the stone. Hey, what goes up must come down. So first of all, just on a more basic level, people who are getting ready to turn off this this episode, why should we care about CBD and, and, what, and why is it worthwhile to look at a substance like CBD? Again, the data shows that it is fairly safe. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's FDA approved product administered to children. It does have therapeutic use and it does have safety guidelines. Why do we care about it having a potential withdrawal effects? Yeah, no, this is very important. Um, you know, so I'll start with sort of the con- the concept of dependence and tolerance and withdrawal. And oftentimes it's really only in the substance abuse world, in the addiction world, that people talk about tolerance, dependence, withdrawal. Um, that's because many or most of our known abuse substances produce physical dependence and cessation of the use of those drugs produces withdrawal. Um, And to the extent that sometimes people get confused with the language and intertwine or intermix saying that someone is dependent on a drug when they mean to say that they have a substance use disorder or vice versa. So these are two separate phenomena and many drugs of abuse can produce dependence and withdrawal but many other drugs produce dependence and withdrawal. So there are many medications that we're told, don't stop that medication cold turkey, right? Taper down your prednisone. Some other drugs that this is common with are drugs that act on the serotonin system. You can go into something called you know, a serotonin withdrawal or a serotonin syndrome when levels of serotonin in the, bo- the body are, are altered Wildly, And why I bring that up is that one of the known effects of CBD is to act on the serotonin system. You know, I think, and so I, you know, I'll, I'll confess, I, I had a grant from the NIH to study whether CBD produces withdrawal, and I spent many years in the laboratory trying to uh, prove or to try to determine that it doesn't. Uh, so on the one hand, as you said, Jehan, the one thought is, well, of course it doesn't, right? It doesn't produce withdrawal because it's not THC-like, it doesn't bind to CB1 receptors. But on the other hand, well, then what does it do? All right, it treats chronic pain, it treats anxiety, it treats insomnia, well, it's doing it somehow. And we know that when drugs act on receptors in the brain and we use them over and over and over again, our brain tries to you know, maintain homeostasis. It, it changes around its levels. And when we stop using that drug, that can 
create withdrawal. So the challenge is if we don't know what CBD is doing, it's hard to predict whether not doing that is going to produce withdrawal. It's hard to test in animals. We tried for years to get mice dependent on CBD. It never happened. So I'm thrilled to see that someone is doing this uh, study in humans because, you know, you just don't know the answer to that question until you try it out. And when we think about how many millions of Americans are turning to CBD, uh, it's a very important question to ask. So I was super excited to see that article on our agenda today. Excellent. We, we are running short on time, but Sarah, you knocked it out of the park. Um, I, I, you, you intimidated Nigam and David. They don't have any comments. It's uh, you, you hit all the good points. Um, you know, just to kind of wrap up for those wondering about this article, there were no serious adverse events reported in this short-term study. And I think people got about 750 milligrams of CBD um, in the study. Again, this is just a short-term kind of abrupt cessation. Maybe they weren't using the right mm -hmm. boxes to check when looking at it. But again, I think this is a place where I'd love to see a long-term study. Um, I think it'd be really fascinating. Yeah, good first step. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, now it's time for something completely different. This is the part where all of our participants, except for me, get to gang up on the main host. Um, I'm going to play a little game, but we're just going to call. This is the beta version of the game. We'll call it um, Truth or Fiction. How about that? In cannabis. Um, and so the topic is CBD. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read just a short summary of a recent article published. And then I'm going to tell you three facts. Two of those are real, and one of them is not. And so what I'd like, Sarah, David, and Nigam, I'd like you to discuss it and try and see if you can figure out. You can ask me questions, but it's more likely to say, based on your experience and knowledge, what do you think is most likely the odd factoid out? So today's truth or fiction is entitled to CBD or not to CBD, what pharmacists need to know. And this is an article that came out of Pharmacy Today by the American Pharmacists Association. And in it, they discuss the clinical and ethical dilemma surrounding the use of a DEA Schedule I drug, specifically CBD. Um, they talk about, uh, you know, introducing it to, you know, its history. They talk about the different categories of products. Now, big brain time. This article mentioned three things. I'm just going to tell you them. One was there are three different types of CBD. Uh, the other point was is uh, it is conclusive that CBD has uh, two drugs that it interacts with, including clobazepam and valproate. And the third factoid is that CBD can treat symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Now, of these three that I'm welcome to repeat, one of them was not a claim supported by this article. Is it, there are three different types of CBD. There are two drugs that um, pharmacists say definitely have drug-drug interactions with CBD in the liver. Or is it that CBD can treat symptoms of Parkinson's disease? Now, uh, just to simply start off, you guys would say, well, what about the three different types of CBD? Do you think that's that might be something that a pharmacist association might communicate. Would it be the drug-drug interactions coming down hard? Would it be perhaps supporting a medical claim about CBD? I'm gonna open up the discussion. Um, you know, Nigam, your thoughts on this. Does one of those stand out to you as fitting in or not fitting in? 
it's um it's really hard because it's just such a wild wild west of claims and so i'm trying to to wrap my head around it um let me ask you uh to repeat one thing and then one question can you say where this article was published again and by who it was in uh pharmacy today uh, volume 26 issue 8 and it came out on august 1st 2020 the it's Mara Norton, who's a farm D and has a bunch of other letters after um, their name. <laughs> uh, but it is the Pharmacy Today, which I believe is the official publication of the American Pharmacists Association. Okay, that's that's really helpful. And then follow-up question, is the game to say which one of these the article did not claim? Not Yes. It's not what I think is true, right? It's what the article no. claimed. <laughs> what the article said. What, what was true about the article? What are those three points? There's, are there three different types of CBD? There are at least two drugs that can cause drug-drug interactions, or three that CBD can treat symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Got it. I'm, I'm just going to, so in, in your instructions, you had said we can discuss. I'm just going to kind of kick off the discussion by commenting on each, if that's okay. Perfect. So, exactly. Yeah. I think on the, on the different types of C- CBD, I mean, I'll name three types right now. There's, you know, uh, CBD the acid form, there's CBD, the decarb form, there's CBD V. Um, here we go. So there's three. So I believe that I, I could see a pharmacist saying that. So there's, there's my commentary there. Um, for the second one, two drug interactions in the liver shown, um, in a laboratory. I believe that, but something to say beyond that is there's probably a lot more. So, once again, this goes back to my wild, wild, less common in the beginning. It's hard to clarify in my mind. The last one, it can treat symptoms of Parkinson's disease. I just have a lot of questions. What symptoms? Um, treat how? To, to what extent? So I think the first two, it's easy for me to wrap my head around. The third one's a little more nebulous. Um, so I'll pass the mic to Sarah David. What do you guys think? Certainly, I'll, I'll jump in there. Uh <clears throat> I, you know, Nigam, yep, uh, pretty clear on the first one, um, unless uh, for some reason they're considering CBDV as another category that's exclusive to CBD. Um, maybe that's a stretch, depending on the, the pharmaceutical group. I don't know. Um, I think chemists can argue to your point, Nigam. The the one thing that stood out, if I can maybe ask a question then on number two, is the, uh, did you, I believe you used the word conclusive, and I don't know if there's any strength in that, that maybe, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking there's a gotcha in there, so that that's the one, it's the only kind of thought I have on that one, and then um, you know, number three, I, I hear you nigam on that, you know, can it treat the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, uh, you know, yeah, what, what symptoms, and again, would a back to the whole conclusiveness would it would a pharmaceutical uh journal really go that far to say oh it can do that um there'd probably be substantial research that it would have to cite and again i I think there'd be a lot more details in there uh to to have to back up such a statement so i don't know uh maybe you can give me a little clarity or confirmation number two just to help me help us number two would say uh that there are at least two drug drug interactions, but I think uh, the factoid, how I'm trying to be tricky here is did they name some and say, these are things to keep an eye out for. These are things we think have significant, could have a significant impact in terms of a drug drug interaction. Um, so not, they're not saying those are the only two, just that there are these two and we feel 
really confident that we're going to, so confident that we're going to print the names of these two drugs and say CBD, reconsider, or, or some sort of language like that. What what was the other one, Jehan? Clonazepam, and what was the second drug? Uh, Clobo, Clobazam and Valproate. <laughs> I had to look them up. All right, I'm going to uh, give... I'm going to give it a whirl. Yeah. So, so what do you think of number I'm one there? Take it home. Uh, so number one is tricky for me because three types of CBD, that's such a, like a sloppy statement, which makes me think they might have said it and who knows what they meant. Like, did they mean from cannabis, from hemp, and from something else? Boy, Sarah, um, you have sat in on a lot of hemp presentations, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've probably heard a lot of people say there's three types of, you know, a lot of things that are not true. Um, so I'm not sure about that one. Number two, I really hope is true, because if there's anything I want pharmacists to talk about, it's drug-drug interactions. And uh, I know Valproate, I believe, is an anti-seizure drug, and maybe... Clobazam is too, um, and that came up in the Epidiolex <laughs> clinical trials. So I'm hoping that they said that. Number three, again, um, I'm sad that they might have also said that. Um, you know, you can go to YouTube and find videos of people taking CBD and curing their Parkinson's symptoms. Um, it certainly has effects in animal models, and some people believe that it may work in humans. So I'm going between one and three as something that they didn't say. I don't, I don't have uh, confidence that they got into the CBD acid and the CBDV. I feel like that would have been sort of beyond the scope. Um, so I'm going to say we're supposed to guess what they did not state. Yeah, one of those they – uh, I am misrepresenting completely. They did not say. Um, yeah. I'm going to choose number one, three types of CBD, but I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, now, remember, this was intended to be a little bit tricky, and we got to end in just a minute here. So, uh, real quick, three different types of CBD. Um, you know, you guys thought this was, you could see it happening, but it, ha it was true, but not for the reasons you think it is. Uh, they broke it up into marijuana-derived CBD, pharmaceutical-derived CBD, and industrial hemp-derived CBD. So whether you get your CBD from a textile or from a plant or synthesized in a lab, I guess is how they divided that up. So that one is true. Uh, the, the, the other one, two drugs, they actually mentioned two drugs and say there is a significant risk of drug-drug interactions with uh, clobazam and valproate. That is also true. So, which leads us to say that number three, indeed, about CBD and Parkinson's, they actually said there was not enough information to support CBD with Parkinson's. It doesn't seem like it makes it worse. It's just like, it's not, it, we have really no evidence that it's specifically effective for these underlying symptoms. So, great job. I knew they were a little tricky. I knew the three types of CBD would, would throw you off, but I wanted to use, I thought the way they phrased it was really weird. I was like, three types of CBD, that's... Um, but I like how you guys thought about it. You know, there are, there are many isomers and forms of, of CBD and conjugates and things. So, you know, I thought, I really liked how you guys thought about that. So thank you for playing along with this beta type. I just loved how you guys broke it down. One question, this is why, second one, that was really great. Um, so uh, this has been a great episode. I definitely have learned a lot. Um, 
and was just generally surprised about how much information we could get from just, again, discussing just a small sampling of the information that is out there. I want to thank you all for your time, your listeners. Thank you so much for tapping or clicking or however you're accessing this, as well as Nigam, David, and Sarah. It is always a pleasure to join you for these recordings and discuss um, you know, industries that are launching. So thank you so much for listening to HLI, and we look forward to uh, sharing our knowledge, our information, and news with you in the future. Thank you.